Our first reading is Romans chapter 12, and we're starting at verse 14. Bless those who persecute, persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And our second reading is from Genesis chapter 50, starting at verse 1. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So, so the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So, jo so Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers their sins, the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. 
His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our teaching theme for 2024 is the hand of God in our world and in our lives. And so for the past three weeks, we've been looking at the hand of God in the life of Joseph. And as Tom said a moment ago, we start a series next week, four weeks, where Tom will show us uh, God's hand in the life of Daniel and of the kings that he served under, which, as he said a moment ago, will be completed at Rivendell. So make sure you register for that. And we'll keep exploring the theme in 2024. Shall I pray? Let me pray. Father, we say with the psalmist, show me the wonders of your great love. Show them to me, you who save by your right hand. So save us now. Show us your hand tonight. Show us Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I think hands are beautiful. No? They're beautiful. Miraculous, even. I don't care what the scientists say. Sir Isaac Newton said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. This, too, is Dr. Graham Hughes' testimony. He can tell you about that later. The hand, designed by God, we believe, for a reason, to touch, to grasp, to hold, to create, to express, to act, to communicate. But an obvious question for me is, does God have hands, as Michelangelo drew in the Sistine Chapel? So three points to make today. It's not in your outlines, but you can write these down if you're taking notes. One, God's hands. Two, in Joseph's life. And thirdly, in our own lives. God's hands in Joseph's and in our lives. So my first point is God's hands. God the Father does not have, of course, God the Father does not have hands. Despite the claim made in The Simpsons that God alone has five hands, 
digits. And it turns out in The Simpsons, I googled it, so does Jesus. Interesting nod. God the Son most assuredly does have hands now, and he said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in the spirit and in truth. In other words, God the Father is the ground of all being and the source of all that is created such that he does not have hands that wither like yours and mine. And yet, hands, the hands of God, are all over the Bible. So, for example, Jesus himself said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What did Jesus believe about the hands of God? Did he believe his Father had hands? Jesus believed that God the Father, his Father, had strong hands. You could say a safe pair of hands, hands that led him through death to the other side, to resurrection, and of course he'll lead us in him to the same place. Since God the Father doesn't have tendons and bones and flesh, his hands then are surely a metaphor in the Bible for God's presence, his creativity, his activity, his care, and his power, his creativity, his activity, his care, and his power. God then has hands. He has ability to create, to grasp, and to hold you, to guide, to reveal, to act, to judge, and to save. Is it any wonder the psalmist said to God, your arm is endowed with power, your hand is strong. In other words, God is active in our world and he shows himself present in our lives. God's hands are used in the Bible to create and sustain. For example, Isaiah 45, God says, it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands, says God, stretched out the heavens. Right? He's got the whole world in his hands. God's hands are used in the Bible to not just create and sustain, but to guide and protect. Example, Psalm 139, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God's hands are used to rescue and deliver. Deuteronomy 5, to Israel, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They're used also in judgment. For example, Exodus 9, on Egypt, this is what the Lord says to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let my people go. If you refuse to let them go, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock and your field. His hands in judgment will find that out during the series in Daniel, as God's hand appears on the wall, scribing judgment for a Babylonian king. Right? You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. That's Rembrandt, by the way. God's hands are used to describe his presence in a life. 
the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And famously in Psalm 63, because you, God, are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Is it any wonder that the psalmist also says, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. That's why this church can't stop singing. I couldn't find the quote, but uh, many years ago I heard of a C.S. Lewis quote. Lewis was charged of anthropomorphizing God, in other words, trying to make God look like a human being. And uh, they laughed at him at the concept that God might have hands, to which Lewis replied, of course God has hands, not mere paws, like the rest of us. Something of Simpsons in that idea. But what happens when it's hard to detect his hand? So we can look at God's hand in Joseph's life. The story of Joseph is a chaotic one and important for anyone who's asked questions about deeper order, the hand of God in the world, and where those hands lead. Joseph's life, as we've been establishing, is messy, is abused by his brothers displaced, thrown into a pit, sold to slavery, believed to be dead, accused of sexual assault in Egypt, and left to rot in prison. By the way, everyone's pain is their own pain. You can't minimize it by perspective. But gosh, you know, wow. And yet, in all of this is two tracks, as we looked at two weeks ago. There's a God track in it. He becomes prime minister of Egypt and in doing so saves many lives, including the life of his family. So how does God do it? Like, how are his hands involved? And the hint is, by the way, it will involve slow cooking. Slow cooking. Joseph's life, I think, could be summed up by that quote from Spurgeon from two weeks ago. God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken, and when we cannot trace his hand, that's Joseph, like, what's going on here? Might be you, what's going on here? When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So, a few minutes to tell you the story so far. And by the way, it's a growth story. First, in chapter 37, Joseph is favoured by his father. At age 17, he has dreams at night, presumably from God. At age 17, he sort of thinks he knows everything. And he has dreams that his older brothers would bow down to him. That's important. They get upset, they abuse him, kidnap him, and sell him to slavery. In chapter 39, sold into slavery in Egypt, he's made head of Potiphar's household but wrongfully accused there of sexual assault and thrown into prison. Get last week's talk from, from uh, the podcast. He's thrown into prison, and in chapter 40, he interprets two dreams of two fellow prisoners. One of them's a cupbearer who has a strange dream. Joseph interprets it, saying, after three days, in three days' time, Pharaoh will restore you as the cupbearer. 
The other prisoner, a baker, is enlivened by this positive dream. He's a positive guy. He thinks it's all going to be positive. And he tells Joseph the dream. It's a strange dream, but Joseph interprets it. After three days, Pharaoh will impale him. The dream comes true. The cupbearer is released, restored to the presence, and the baker is impaled. Such is the nature of the despot. But Joseph's plea to the cupbearer to be remembered, to be noticed, falls on deaf ears. 40 verse 23, which simply told the cupbearer forgets him. So we languish this there for another three years, when in chapter 41, Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, has two dreams that are similar. One of them, and all dreams are strange, one of them is he sees seven ugly and thin, gaunt, cows devour six sleek and fat ones. And in the second dream, he sees thin, scorched, weedy ears of wheat consuming seven healthy, full ears of wheat. God gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream. He says they're the same dream, and it's simple. There'll be seven years of plenty sleek and fat cows, healthy and full ears of corn, which will be followed by seven years of famine, which will swallow up the years of plenty. Daniel adds some sound advice. Make a provision. If you know things are going to be bad, space it out. Make a provision for the bad years and the good years. Any of you who've been in business knows that this is a good plan. Get ready, in other words. Pharaoh, impressed, puts... Uh, Joseph in charge of all of Egypt without a reference or a, you know, adequate job search, but, you know, such is despotic rule, but it turns out to be a good one. Joseph collects enormous amounts of grain during the bad years, for the bad years, which eventually come to Egypt and indeed to Israel. In chapter 42, the famine comes to Israel, and you need to know this one piece of information, a new child has been born to Joseph's mother while Joseph is away, to Jacob, and his name is Benjamin. Jacob, the father, says to Joseph's brothers, the ones who abused Joseph, but not little Benjamin, I've heard there's grain in, down in Egypt, 42 verse 2, go down there, buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. So they go down to Egypt and they meet Joseph, their long-lost brother, the one they sold into slavery. The one they listened to crying out in a pit for his life, but they sold him off. But, and it's key, it's key, they didn't recognize Joseph. You know, Joseph now looks like an Egyptian. I went to Ramesses on Friday. He looks like an Egyptian. They don't, they don't know what he looks like. And so chapter 42, verse 6, when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him. Hmm? Remember? They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and then he plays with them. There's some sense of poetic justice for the reader. It's hard not to think that his 17-year-old self came bubbling up from time to time. It's hard to know how to read Joseph's actions if you read the story. Read it on your own. 
So, for example, he calls them spies and puts them into prison, not a pit, but a prison. And then he pulls them out and requires them to go back to Israel and to verify their story, and to verify it by bringing back little Benjamin, which is, of course, a source of great anguish for everyone, including the father, including Jacob or Israel. Long story short, but Joseph rigs it so that they don't pay for the grain that they take, the silver in the sacks. When they open up the sacks of grain, there's their payment. They freak, they're being played. They freak out. And so it takes them some time to return, but they need the grain to live. So they persuade Jacob to let his younger boy, Benjamin, come with them back to Egypt. And when Joseph sees little Benjamin, he's never seen him before. Such a heart-rending story. He's overwhelmed at the sight of his younger brother, whom he's never seen. He's lost the time with him. And in 43 verse 30, we read, Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. And after he had washed his face, you ever done that after weeping? You know, <sighs> you know I'm talking about? After he washed his face, he came out. Long story shorter, he zeroes in on Benjamin. Leave him here. But Judah does what he hadn't done to Joseph all those years ago. He pleads for Benjamin's life by offering his own. And like champagne bubbling up from within, chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his intendants, he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And again, he wept so loudly. By the way, gentlemen, it's good to weep. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. No hiding these tears. Jacob then learns about it, the father, and the father is restored to his son, presumed dead. Again, more tears. And he moves his whole family to Egypt, to the best land, to save them. And that becomes the context for their slavery 400 years later and the redemption out of Egypt, which becomes the mode for our understanding of being liberated from sin. But there's so much agony in the story. If you think your family's complicated, get a load of Joseph's. The brothers, of course, know that they've got a problem with God. They heard the blood-curdling cries from the pit, and it's haunting them now. Chapter 42, verse 28, their hearts sank when they turned to each other, trembling, and they said, what is it that God has done to us? And after Jacob dies, his brothers wonder, and I put it up here because it's important, what if Joseph holds a grudge? That would be natural and normal. I probably wouldn't. Would you? What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? We did lots of wrongs to him. Grudges are a way to feel the truth that someone has wronged you. It's one way. But Joseph doesn't hold a grudge, and it begs the question, how? And the answer is, he sees God's hand in it all, leading everything, all of it, somewhere, to reconciliation and the saving of many lives. In other words, by going to God, not just sort of like peace, in, in a peace, 
By going to God, he gets above the fray. Where then can you see the hand of God in the life of, life of Joseph? And the answer is, he's always there. You're going to hear that in a moment, aren't you? Hmm? He's always there. In Potiphar's house, a slave. 39 verse 2. Just wanted to see if you were noticing. The Lord was with Joseph such that he prospered. But, accused of assault, thrown into prison, 32 verse, 39 verse 20, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. Later he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Isn't that incredible? God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Somehow God was in it. Now, honestly, he preferred not to be a slave he preferred not to be in prison in the same way that you'd prefer not to be going through that trial right now in body, mind, or estate. But God had something for him. And God's hand was guiding him. And he fears God. Chapter 42, verse 18. God gave him what was needed to resist the testing. God gave him the ability to interpret the dreams God gave him administrative skills, like he's given you administrative skills. God gave him insight, how to run an empire. It would appear that God gave him patience and a level head, something his 17-year-old self did not have. There are some troubling dealings, things in, this, in his dealings. But in the end, he heads where God is heading to reconciliation with his brothers and, more importantly, the renewal of the covenant that God made with his great-grandfather Abraham, grandfather Isaac, and his father Jacob. Just very briefly, I want you to focus, open up to Genesis 50, verse 19, 20, and 21, because Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on this, a very important commentary, calls this a threefold reply, and I want to see if you can learn from each of the three ways in which he responds to his brothers. The brothers say, hey, your dad's dead, but he's told you to forgive us. Who knows if that's true? But Joseph doesn't need his dead father's hand. He's already seen God's hand. And so he says, one, threefold response, one, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, right? I bear no grudge. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God to judge you? It's God's place to judge, and I'm being in his place is a very bad idea. I don't get to judge you, only God gets to judge you. I will not take the place of God, prosecuting my case as though I am judge, jury, and executioner. There is a place, of course, for speaking the truth, and jo Joseph does that. And there is a case for, of course, for prosecuting your case via the law and various advocates. But standing in the place of God, I think this is very common in Australia right now. It's what happens in social media all the time, where we rise in judgment over everyone. Enough of it. We need to learn to live at peace, to trust God with our hurts and our hearts. We do not, will not, 
ever sit in the place of God. And so the desire to hurt others, we can, we can let it go. Romans 13 says the same thing. Bless your enemies. Repay evil with good, because you know that God will sort it out. That's the first thing. Secondly, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me. You really did. And you should be judged by God. I'll leave that between you and God. It's up to you and God. But I can see that God intended all of this for good, somehow, mysteriously, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We sung it a moment ago. Even when the enemy turns his hand for evil, how does it go? Even you turn it around for your good and your glory. As we said two weeks ago, there are two tracks, a hidden one and one you see. Most Australians live by what you can just see, but there's a hidden track, the plans and purposes of God. God was intending to save many lives. If Joseph had not been put in that pit, as awful as that pit was, there might have been no descendants of Abraham, not in the purposes of God, from whom comes the Messiah. An important verse is chapter 45, verse 7. Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me ahead of you to Egypt to preserve for you a remnant, a group of the people of God to save your lives by a great deliverance by his hand. Without Joseph down the pit, there's no salvation for you and me. Just like Jesus on the cross, same thing. The third response is, verse 21, so then, don't be afraid, he repeats it, I will provide for you and for your children, very practical, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He forgave them. He blessed them. He left the judgment to God. Derek Kidner, in his landmark commentary on Genesis, says this about those threefold response. There they are, there's the threefold response. He says this, each sentence of the threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. Two, one, leave all the writing of wrong to God. Secondly, to see God's providing hand in man's malice. And thirdly, to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but with practical affection. These are the attitudes that anticipate Christ-likeness. Now, this doesn't answer every question, especially for those of you who feel safe, those of you who've done no wrong but someone feels the pain towards you and won't let it go, there's a bunch of ways in which this is complicated. But the principle holds of forgiveness. Jen set the service up perfectly for us. Because there's an alternative, and here it is. Cheeky, Fred Presbyterian author, and I say that like there's another kind of Presbyterian, he wrote this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savour the last toothsome morsel, both of the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back, in many ways, a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are woofing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast 
is you. Be careful if anger and a driving justice for revenge, getting even, be careful if that's your mode. Joseph will not feast on his anger. He is reconciled to his brothers who hurt him. He chose the path of peace, of shalom. Which leads to the obvious question of God's hands in our own lives. Well, that's what 2024 is all about. Groups, community groups, worth uh, putting a hand up for one of them already. That's in the Churchill links. And in our teaching in 2024, the year of the hand of God. I want to say that what happened to Joseph will happen for everyone, but I'm not going to say that. I can't say that, at least not before the resurrection to come. Joseph, comparing Joseph to me is like comparing apples to oranges. Not everyone gets let out of prison. We know that. Not everyone becomes prime minister of Egypt. We know that. And the reason I can say it's apples to oranges is there's context. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless the world through their descendants, but those descendants need to live. And the story of Joseph is a story of God sending Joseph ahead to Egypt to ensure that he keeps his covenant that leads to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. That's not the same, but we're invited to share the same faith. That's what Hebrews says. Hebrews 11 verse 22 makes that point. We share the faith that Joseph had in his trust in God. And God has not left us as orphans, as Jesus said he wouldn't. God is present. He's with you. What's the alternative? He's working his purpose out, deeper order, not chaos. God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. He'll give you what you need in the moment. He'll hold you up in a time of testing. He will show you himself that he's near you. And during this year, we'll be talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There will be tears in this life. Joseph wept when he saw Benjamin. He wept when he revealed himself to his brothers. He wept when he saw his father. Wept at his death. Jesus wept, knowing the hand of God doesn't always shield you from the pain. You learn from Joseph that the plans and purposes of God take time. Time. God is not a fast food TikTok God. Rather, God slow cooks his gracious purposes. And that's frustrating for some of you who are hurting in body, mind, or estate. That's going to require patience, even in prison. You might not be able to trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. And you can trust Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Jesus had hands, not metaphorically, and his hands were outstretched on the cross, and those hands were and remain pierced for you and for me. Humanity meant harm. God meant good, the saving of many lives. So that we can join the Apostle Paul when he says in Romans 8, even in the suffering, we're more than conquerors. Even in the suffering, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That is, to be conformed, to be chiseled out in the likeness or image of his son, 
That is the new and better Joseph. So what do you learn from Joseph? One, silence from God is not absence, he's absence. Two, he is present in all things, working his purposes out in the mess. And three, he's doing it bringing reconciliation, salvation and redemption out of the conflict and maybe even salvation for you and for me.